0: Dementia Researcher, with a blog and a rating.
1: This is a World Alzheimer's Day special update, and I'm Adam Smith. Today, hardly a day passes when we don't hear about a new discovery in the fight to combat dementia. Everyone adds another small piece to the massive jigsaw that will eventually build up a picture of the disease, how to prevent it, diagnose it, treat it, and care for those living with it. For World Alzheimer's Day, we asked our staff bloggers to share what they think have been the biggest discoveries in their field of research in the last 12 months, and what they think will be the hot topics in the coming year. We also wanted to share some fantastic news from Race Against Dementia, who are bringing four more experts to solve the puzzle. Our first update comes from Dr Clarissa Glebel, Research Fellow from the University of Liverpool.
2: The past 12 months, 18 months really, have been captured by how COVID-19 has affected care for people living with dementia, those living in the community and those living in care homes. But research has also focused a great deal, understandably, on the many unpaid carers providing care for someone with dementia. We have seen many negative impacts of the pandemic and its restrictions on people with dementia and unpaid carers, ranging from faster deterioration to the emotional impacts of increased care duties and not seeing your relative with dementia at the care home, to being apprehensive to emerging from lockdowns and severe restrictions. Let us not forget the research focus on care home practices and infection risks, though. And yes, you will find some of my and my team's research amongst this. So what's next? We might be emerging out of the worst of the pandemic, in the UK at least, but there is always the potential for restrictions to be reimposed and for long-lasting effects on the well-being of and care provision for people with dementia. Especially in light of yesterday's announcement of a new health and social care levy, I believe the next 12 months will continue to focus on the long-term impacts that the pandemic is having on the care sector. And from April 2022 onwards, on the changes that such a minor change in funding may have on dementia care provision.
1: The last year really has put a spotlight on dementia care. Our next update comes from Beth Hare, PhD student from the University of Sheffield.
3: We still do not fully understand how our energy-demanding brains regulate their energy supply, but each year we discover in more detail how cells of the neurovascular unit work together to ensure energy demands are met in both health and disease. Over the past year or so, the field has gained a more detailed understanding of the role of pericytes within our brains and the roles these cells may play in brain diseases that lead to dementia. Pericytes, a type of mural cell, wrap around small vessels of the brain, including capillaries, precapillary arterioles, and postcapillary venules. Accumulating evidence suggests that these cells may play many important roles within our brains, including the development and maintenance of the blood brain barrier, regulation of blood flow to the brain, as well as playing a role in the clearance of waste from our brains. Many studies suggest that in Alzheimer's disease pericyte loss occurs, which can lead to the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, impair the clearance of amyloid beta, which may ultimately result in cognitive dysfunction. The neurovascular research field is an exciting field to be part of right now, with many new discoveries being made. Personally, over the next year, I'm excited to see even more research into pericytes, especially research looking at how this cell type could be targeted in brain diseases that can cause dementia. Additionally, further research into the glymphatic system involved in the clearance of waste from the brain, especially during sleep, will be interesting as evidence suggests this clearance system may be impaired in Alzheimer's disease.
1: Parasites really sound fascinating. Our next update comes from Felicity Slocum, PhD student from Loughborough University.
4: Progress has been made in studying how interactions can be used to support the personhood and identity of people living with dementia. Research from Pilnik in the acute hospital setting has shown the importance of context for interactional strategies that healthcare practitioners can use in responding to -to hard-to-interpret talk from people living with dementia. This research demonstrated the accomplishment of healthcare practitioners in supporting the identity of people living with dementia by not drawing attention to the hard-to-interpretness of their talk, as doing so potentially saves face of the person living with dementia from not having to repeat their talk again and again without the healthcare practitioner being able to understand their meaning. Research from Linley similarly found co-participants in interactions support the personhood of people living with dementia by using certain strategies which allow opportunities for competence from people living with dementia to emerge. Research focus should be upon more conversation analytic research in this area. Previously, recommendation for best practice was seldom based upon interactional research evidence. Recommendations did not consider interactional context, or differences between individuals or people living with different forms of dementia, with recommendations based upon anecdotal evidence. This can be misrepresentative of what happens in interaction, so we must work to build an empirical evidence base for communicative training and advice with people living with dementia, which is supportive of identity. In conversation analytic work more generally, there is a call for more involved co-research designs, especially as healthcare practitioners have said they have more faith in communications training when people living with dementia themselves have stressed the importance of interactional details.
1: I feel like I've read so much on conversation analysis in the last year, it's such a fascinating topic. Our next update comes from Hannah Hussain, a PhD student from the University of Sheffield.
5: Hi, Hannah here, and my research area is measuring and valuing quality of life for use in dementia economic evaluations. Over the last 12 months, there have been developments in this area, or rather confirmations of existing hypotheses. The MODEM study conducted by LSE was a large observational project charting the lives of people with dementia and their caregivers over an entire year. The publications from this project are super interesting and are continuing to be released so definitely check it out. Why this project was particularly exciting for researchers in my area is literally in the name whereby MODEM was short for Modelling Outcome and Cost Impacts of Interventions for Dementia. In 2020, the MODEM project team published an analysis paper of cross-sectional data from the study. Here the data of 307 people with all stages of dementia and their caregivers was explored. They had completed a range of instruments assessing outcomes such as cognition, quality of life, burden and behavioural symptoms. The data was subjected to various fancy statistical tests and it was found that disease severity, as measured by cognition, via MMSE was not significantly associated with quality of life of people with dementia or the caregiver, particularly for self-reported quality of life. Overall, the data showed that actually, severity of dementia is not associated with lower quality of life. This finding has been shown in other recent studies and may in fact be contributing to a culture change in the research. If the goal of treatments is to improve quality of life, then perhaps using measures of cognition as a marker of treatment success is outdated, particularly in economic models where utilities are assigned to health states. If these health states are defined by cognition, which has traditionally been the case, and cognition does not align with quality of life, then are we really capturing the right thing?
1: There are lots of outputs coming from the MODEM study. They also have a website at modem-dementia.org.uk. Our next update comes from Dr. Kamar Amin Ali, Research Associate from the University of Glasgow.
6: My research area is focused on understanding the link between Traumatic Brain Injury or TBI and the degenerative brain diseases which lead to dementia. This includes repetitive head injuries, which contact sport athletes might sustain as a result of multiple concussions or repeated heading of a football, for example. Recently, there has been an increase in media focus specifically on the issue of dementia in football, highlighting the need for better understanding of neurodegenerative disease risk in former athletes. A significant paper published in the last 12 months by the Field Study which looked at football's influence on lifelong health and dementia risk, showed that the risk of neurodegenerative disease differed by field position. Defenders were found to be at five times greater risk, but goalkeepers were found to be at no significantly greater risk compared to the general population. In addition, the paper also reported the longer the career length, the greater the risk of neurodegenerative disease. The progress made by the field study has resulted in policy changes made by the football associations of Scotland, England and Northern Ireland who have restricted heading in new football as a precautionary measure. Progress over the next 12 months should look to minimise the risk of dementia-related neurodegenerative disease in former professional athletes, with potential further changes needing to be made which may include further heading restrictions and guidelines and improve concussion education and concussion protocols.
1: I think k wins the prize for having the hottest topic in dementia right now. With the new relationship between the Football Association and the Alzheimer's Society, I think we're going to hear lots more about this work in the coming year. Our next blog comes from Dr Sam Moxon. A research associate from the University of Manchester.
7: I've been challenged to reflect on what I think has progressed most in my field in the last 12 months and where I think the focus should be going forward. My field's a bit of a strange one. It's not neuroscience, medicine, or pure biology, it's more of a marrying of engineering and biomedical science. I work in biomaterials. Essentially, I apply naturally occurring materials to create tissue-like environments to grow cells in. It's a field that's always had a big part to play in orthopaedic medicine, but over the last 12 months, I think a lot of progress has been made in spreading the word about biomaterials to dementia researchers. It's not a field that many dementia groups were particularly aware of, and I think senior figures have done a great job of connecting with dementia researchers and vice versa. It's the perfect marrying, an engineering mindset meeting with biological expertise To tackle the issue of dementia from an entirely new angle. There are still very few papers out there around this theme but I think over the next few years we should see a boom in exciting research coming out of taking a biomaterials approach to studying the underlying mechanisms of dementia. It allows us to answer questions we previously couldn't and I think it's vital that gifted biomaterial scientists continue to connect with dementia research groups. Dementia is a complex issue and it needs as many different minds working on it as possible. Biomaterials is a field to keep an eye on. I don't think it will be long before we see a groundbreaking study published with a collaboration between a dementia research group and a biomaterials group. Definitely watch this space.
1: That was a great update from Sam and I love his work. It's really fascinating. If you haven't already listened to our podcast, he recorded with us earlier this year talking to colleagues from Loughborough about their growing brain cells onto microchips, you should definitely go check that out. We have three updates left to come, and our next comes from Nathan Stevens, a PhD student from the University of
8: Worcester. Well, in the last 12 months, all that springs to mind is COVID-19 and the disproportionate impact the pandemic has had on a population that already experienced so much injustice by the way things are done in everyday life. But there are positive effects that have developed from conditions of pandemic policy, and what I have seen in the eight months working on the Worcestershire Meeting centres project is that meeting centres, along with other forms of voluntary and community sector support, have quickly adapted, and adapted well. When in-person support ceased in March 2020, Technological and non-technological remote support, including online meetings, social media, emails, garden and doorstep visits, newsletters, phone calls, and activity bundles, was the only way to ensure people were supported. It is not only the delivery of support that developed, but people living with dementia and care has quickly developed technological skills too, which has fast tracked efforts to combat digital exclusion in the older populations. Also, more people have been able to access support due to the availability and flexibility of remote methods. While for many, nothing trumps a cup of tea and a slice of cake with several of your friends, generally remote support has been well received by people, and many community-based supports, such as meeting centres, are offering or planning to offer blended approaches, incorporating in-person and remote provision to optimise person and family-centred support, and remove barriers to access and support for underrepresented groups. Staying at home may reduce the risk present from the virus, and some forms of remote support are effective. However, as evidence shows, it can lead to a multitude of serious problems. It is imperative that as we enter the winter, government do not scaremonger older people and society and force them to live in isolation, but instead invest in the adult social care system so that vital community-based support is implemented, sustained and scaled up. However, there are challenges here too, such as how do we ensure investment leads to increased access and quality of community services, with many providers not routinely collecting data or monitoring of performance. Answering these questions will ensure that the availability of effective support that is absolutely necessary for people to live well isn't described as patchy or a postcode lottery, but instead uniform and equitable.
1: at the end now we have two more updates to come. The first is from Dr. Yvonne Couch. Yvonne is an AI care research fellow from the University of Oxford
0: Stroke and dementia an update In searching for articles to review in this update I was reminded of the opening to all stroke researchers presentations which is basically, stroke is bad. Stroke is bad to the point that I know one researcher who shut his lab after a relative had a stroke because he realised how little he could do. However, the reality is that mild stroke isn't actually that bad. Don't get me wrong, it's still not good, but the chances of survivability have gone way up, and with them, so have all the post-stroke complications, like cognitive impairment. Now here's the problem. I have around 300 words, and apparently everything cures or improves stroke outcomes. And I mean everything. Computer gaming, transcranial magnetic stimulation, Tai Chi, occupational therapy, exercise, and that's just in people. We've not even got into the obscure extract of guava juice studies in mice. So I'm going to go over the 300. Just a warning. Now, what could potentially be taken away from these studies? is that what a lot of these patients need is just a bit of input. In the same way that the big back pain studies showed that if you spend 10 minutes more in the clinic with the patient, they report better outcomes. Here it could be that simply the act of interaction with stroke patients is beneficial. So rather than find specific studies which I think have pushed the field forward, I found a few big reviews of the field which I think improve our understanding. We'll work through from basic stroke treatment to cognitive impairment. The first is a meta-analysis of the use of tenecteplase in large vessel occlusion. The main clot-busting drug used in stroke at the present time is alteplase, whereas tenecteplase is more commonly used for cardiac ischemia. The benefits of tenecteplase are largely associated with its longer half-life, which mean it could be given as a bolus. This shortens the stroke to thrombolysis time considerably, as alteplase is given as a bolus followed by a drip. The meta analysis by the Zvigulis group demonstrated that in trials, tenecteplase patients had a significantly better outcome at three months than those receiving out place The similar side effect profile, improved half-life, and decreased cost of tenecteplase make it an appealing drug for acute stroke. The next study I think is important I take no credit for finding. It was sent to me by a friend, and I would never have found it on my own because it's to do with imaging. Biesel's group published a large review of pooled data in Lancet Neurology demonstrating that there are specific locations within the brain that strongly predict post-stroke cognitive impairment, specifically the left frontotemporal region, right parietal region, and the left thalamus. The utility of this information will only become apparent when the knowledge is combined with novel thrombolytic therapies. Could we use better drugs like tenecteplase to save more of the brain, including these regions, and thus reduce post-stroke cognitive impairment. The final study I think is important is Terry Quinn's meta-analysis of cholinesterase inhibitors, because it highlights the importance of reviewing large amounts of literature to produce robust negative findings. It demonstrates that cholinesterase inhibitors, widely used in dementia, were largely ineffective in vascular dementia. This is likely due to the different mechanistic underpinnings of cell death in the two diseases. But by highlighting the paucity of therapy available, Quinn and colleagues have potentially stimulated researchers to approach vascular dementia differently. Overall, what these reviews underscore is the enormity of the field. The fact that it is occasionally important to pause and take stock, to review all the major contributions in context and to come away with something more than just Stroke is bad.
1: We now have about half a dozen blogs on our website from Yvonne. They're all so clever, funny and witty and insightful. Pop over to our website and have a look or scroll back through your app and you'll find more of them there. Our last update comes from Dr Anna Volkmer, Research Fellow from the University College London.
9: It is known that communication difficulties carry a high disease burden and are often the primary cause of relationship breakdown. In primary progressive aphasia or PPA, the language-led dementias, these difficulties contribute to reduced quality of life, social isolation and loneliness. And the carers of people with PPA also report increased social isolation. Intervention research has tried to address this issue over the last 12 months by focusing less on outcomes related to the disease impairment, for example the number of words a person can say, and much more on the functional day-to-day conversation that people have, or discourse as we often call it. To date, many of the interventions for PPA and other dementias have been informed by practice-based knowledge held by specialists in the field. Sharing this knowledge is paramount and is as valuable to informing care as the reporting of gold standard randomised controlled trials. Two particular pieces of work stand out to me this year, including the work undertaken by Mahendra et al., who have described a palliative approach to the management of people with PPA, which also supports the need for us to review and revise how we measure outcomes when we work with this client group. Currently under review is a consensus study on best practice principles for speech and language therapists or pathologists working with people with PPA. This was an international study bringing together clinical academic speech and language therapists to provide guidance for clinical practitioners working in this field. This really demonstrates the movement in this area of research towards larger collaborative studies.
1: Well, it falls to me to round off on our World Alzheimer's Day Special Edition update. Our fantastic bloggers have each given an update on the hot topics in their research fields. And of course, as I mentioned at the start, there are too many things to mention in one update. So many new discoveries on everything from biomarkers to dementia risk factors and everything in between. But before we close, I think it's important to recognise that all of the progress made is thanks to you. Your drive and passion and dedication is at the heart of these discoveries and when partnered with people living with the disease and their carers you are stronger and able to deliver the much needed discoveries everyone hopes for. Here at Dementia Researcher, we're working hard to provide the support you need to keep you in the field and to attract new people to join you. We recognise that being a researcher has a whole range of challenges so we hope to make your life a little bit easier. To support this ambition, we teamed up with iStart and an amazing group of early career researchers to create the PIA to elevate early career researchers. Hashtag ECR PIA. Right now, we're doing the largest ever survey of dementia researchers to better understand what's being done well and the challenges you face. The results will improve the support we provide and inform guidance for research funders institutions and policymakers, Please take some time to complete the survey mentioned earlier in the newsletter or head over to dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk forward slash survey. You can complete it on a smartphone and being honest, it takes about 20 minutes to complete, but the results are so important. Finally, later today, I'll be chairing the ECR PIA annual scientific meeting And this year, we have two fantastic guest speakers from Race Against Dementia and Hinsta Performance. Dr. Penny Moyle and Dan Sims will share their work on instilling Formula One motorsport approach and attitude into dementia research, exploring how researchers can benefit from the same performance coaching given to athletes and Formula One drivers, considering everything from attitude to diet and exercise, and how coaching and mentoring can bring fantastic benefits. You can register for that using the link below. It starts at 2pm British Summertime and if you missed it today, don't worry, it'll be available on catch-up. Thank you all again for listening and good luck in the coming year.
9: Thank you for listening. Join the Dementia Research bloggers and share your own views.